Broadcasting from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia to around the globe. You're listening to Shark Bite Biz, your exclusive place for business strategy, sales, marketing, and tech in the roaring 20s. And now, here's your host, David Strausser. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the newest episode, the premiere episode of season three of Shark Bite Biz. As always, I'm your sometimes glamorous, sometimes rock star host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete chaos. Amazing episode again for you all today to kick off this season three. It's something different. We love independent creators, and we got one for the show today. One of the deeper and more raw discussions we've had on this show. You're going to love it. First, though, remember, if you're watching us on YouTube, you can join the channel. Support us. For only $3 a month, you can become a baby shark. Now, if money through big tech isn't your thing, don't worry, I got you. Got you covered with DeadHouseCoffee.com. Use the code SHARK. Yep, that's SHARK, okay? You get 20% off of your orders, and all the proceeds directly support us right here, producing the biggest and best show we possibly can. Back to today's show. I think as a society, we've grown a little bit too much into the this or that mentality. Everything is blue or green without the possibility of having anything that's yellow. Today's filmmaker has a wonderful story that he's going to tell us today and how he ended up creating his first feature film. It's a pretty gnarly story, and it's got some deep underlying that can touch us all. Too many people want to erase the past. As I've always said, sunlight is the best disinfectant we can have as a society. We should all study the past, know the past, know all the nuances about it. Why? So that we can grow from it. Now, this is the same advice I give you in business as I give you as an individual, okay? You always have to be learning from your past. If you're a business owner, a creator, learn from your mistakes. You know, it's it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to learn from the past. And while sometimes the mistakes made are, you know, pretty devastating, look, you can't change it. You just got to learn and grow from it. It's not as clear cut or as simple as one would like to think. Today's guest is, is an amazing entrepreneur with an incredible life journey. And the best part is he's just getting started because his debut film is out and it, it's awesome. It's a great story. It's very touching. So who is today's guest? Mr. Eddie Bailey, a Memphis, Tennessee native, is an Emmy-nominated producer. Bailey makes his directorial debut with Memphis Magic, a film that deftly juxtaposes the evolution of Jukin against the racially charged socio-political climate that engulfs the city and takes us on a journey through the lens of a cultural revolution. See what I mean? That is deep right there. This is a great man, a great story, and I'm honored to bring him all to the show. So, hey, let's get season three kicked off right now. Let's bring Eddie on in here. Personal growth. Eddie, 
Welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Yes, I love it. I'm Shark Bait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, great, right? So we have a tradition on the show. Very first question we ask everybody that's been on here. Okay. Uh, How did you get where you're at? Who are you? What do you do? You know, basically uh, tell everybody out there what makes Eddie Eddie. Man, that's, that's a very simple question, but a loaded question at the same time. So of everybody course, says name, it's a loaded question. Yeah. My name is, Life uh, is Eddie, complicated. Go ahead. <laughs> my name is uh, Eddie Bailey. Uh, I am a, uh, a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker. Um, so what makes me me? Well, I am originally from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, raised in Atlanta. Um, so I'm a Southern boy, uh, born and bred. And I moved here uh, to New York City after I graduated from the illustrious Howard University in Washington, D.C., in uh, 2002, and I actually moved to New York in 2003, the year after, and I moved to New York City with uh, $20 to my name, a very uh, traditional struggle story. So I moved to New York with $20. I didn't have a bank account because it got shut down. Uh, I didn't have a cell phone at the wow. time, and I moved in with a friend who worked uh, for Goldman Sachs in a brownstone, and I slept on the couch for about four months, and then uh, my first internship in New York uh, was with a company uh, who put me in the room with Russell Simmons. Um, and that was short-lived because I was only in the room for that, that 10 minutes. Uh, but then that led to me uh, getting other jobs as a production assistant at MTV, at NBC, BET, and all these other different... Uh, Hold on, you were still in a room for 10 minutes with Russell Simmons. I mean, you just like, oh, that yeah. was short-lived. That's over with. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. so cool. It, it was really cool. It was, it, it was cool. Um, and, you know, then I just kind of built my uh, career from there. And here yeah. I am now. So if I would were to describe to the audience who I am, I'm Eddie Bailey. Um, I am a Southern boy. I am uh, a leader. I am a creative. I am a multi-hyphenate. Uh, and I make things work. Yeah. That's that's awesome. You know, I heard something there in your your story, and it, it just really kind of reminded me a little bit about mine. I lived all over, uh, but it was mostly by self choice. And yeah. my listeners, uh, my viewers, they all know when I was eighteen, like two months after September eleventh, then around November two thousand one. I moved from cold country, Pennsylvania, out to Tijuana, Mexico, and I lived mm. down there for about 15 years. Yeah. in, you know, Tijuana ghetto. And, you know, it, it's funny when you were saying that, you know, you were sleeping there on a couch, it just brought up memories of me when I was down living there because I was actually sleeping on a cold cement slab floor for about a year and a half. I have no idea why I did it. Yeah, but, you know, I was young but, them, it, I guess. It, no it, character. It, right. It builds character and it's also a part of your story. It's, if you want mm -hmm. something, you know, you have to do some things that so you have to make some sacrifices. So if that means sleeping on a cold slab of a floor, then, you know, you have to do that. So I'm not, you know, I applaud that. Yeah, it, it, it was it was hard because a lot of people be like, you know, why would you move to a just to sleep on the floor like there's a million other options out there and i mean i just i wanted to live internationally i mean this is what i had to do it was 18 i didn't have right. any other formal education you know and i just kind of right. 
forged my own path to get where I'm at. And I, I view that there's some similarities between both you and me because it, it sounds very much just from your intro that you also didn't have everything given to you that you've had to kind of dream it and then work to achieve that dream. Right. Is that pretty accurate? That's very accurate. You know, I always wanted to um, be behind the camera since I was six years old. Um, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do behind the camera, but I just knew that I wanted to be behind the camera. Um, right. And secondly, I also knew that I wanted to be in New York. Um, I have mm -hmm. an auntie of mine who I actually, I uh, credit in the film under the thank, under the thank yous. Uh, she took me to uh, New York City, me and some of my cousins to New York City when I was about maybe, I want to say 11 years old, or maybe, mm -hmm. maybe it was eight. I think it was eight years old anyway. Um, I remember getting out in Times Square, and the first thing you do when you get to New York is you look up, you know, because you don't. Oh, the, yeah. The skyline is crazy. And then I looked across the street, and I saw two guys uh, running from the uh, cops uh, mm -hmm. with some stolen goods. And I said, I want to live in this city. Because <laughs> this city is, I mean, this is exciting. This was something There's that something I, about about the, the, the city yeah. life. I mean, that's exactly what... I've, I don't know. I've always felt that because, again, I was from cold country, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So if I went to a place like Philadelphia, if I went where I live now, if or if I went to New York, um, or like, for example, when I moved to uh, Tijuana, I mean, Tijuana is you know, 1.52 million people, something like that. It's a pretty large city down there in, yeah. in Mexico. And it, it was totally totally different for me it, it, it's just weird it, it's like i was drawn to it like yeah i like this yeah. city life i like it much better than the rural life where i just i don't know i just didn't feel like i felt in yeah it's, 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 it's a certain kind of like thing that it's like it the city it doesn't feel safe but it's mm -hmm. a certain kind of uh beauty in that in knowing that you know you have to fend for yourself and you have to you know kind of you know make it um on your own, so to speak. Definitely felt that when I lived out in LA. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I could, I could only imagine. I could. Only I felt imagine. that more in LA than I did in Tijuana, if you could believe it. I mean, really? that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's just you know where you're at, and you know different climates and things like that. But I really, 15 years down in Tijuana, no issues. Wow, you know? that's that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's teach your own though. I mean, I'm sure for every time I say that, there's probably ten people who are like, "Yeah, I almost got killed down there." But yeah, for I've me, it was good. But I, I hear stories about people almost getting robbed, or people, or the water down there. It's like, what did you do for water? Mm -hmm. Well, so they have water trucks. You know, they okay. like every morning six a.m. You hear people on these huge trucks honking, and they're selling filled uh, filtered water. Oh. And you would do that, or you'd go to the water store, you know, and you buy 15 water. years. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's a long it, time. Maybe, now, towards the end, it did get a little bit old. You know, some of the things that I used to embrace when I was younger, yeah. I started I started getting cranky about it in my mm -hmm. early 30s. It was like, I mean, this isn't as cool anymore, you know, and eventually ended up moving up towards, uh, uh, well, first San Diego. But when I lived in San Diego, I still worked down in Mexico. So I did yeah. reverse migration. And then 
uh, ended up taking a position that led me to LA and with the same job, they promoted me to run the Northeast. So now I'm in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's, life is definitely a journey. And I, uh, I respect that from, from your story. Now, one other thing that you mentioned is that from the age of six, you always knew that you wanted to be behind the camera. Why did you feel behind the camera instead of in front of the camera? Well, I knew I didn't want to be in front because I guess I didn't want that much attention. Uh, but I knew that I, I liked the way um, films made you feel. I like what they made you made you think. They they uh, you know invoke thought, um, mm-hmm. and I, and I like that. And and I knew that you know um, it was somewhere behind the camera that that was happening. That was going on. You know, these people mm-hmm. behind the camera were. Uh, were making you, you know, feel a certain way when when you watch uh, different films. Like uh, when I was growing up, I loved A Bronx Tale. Um, that was one of my favorite movies back then. Um, so you know, different films like that make you feel certain a certain way, and and especially if you can kind of capture the attention or capture a moment in time in history in that film, you know. So it, then your film becomes not only relevant to the time, but also uh, relevant throughout, you know, um, the echoes of the universe, because it's, you know, um, it's everlasting, you know, so. So that's really, really interesting what you're saying. And I think it's very valid and truthful as well, too, because like, for example, we just had Soledad O'Brien on the show, you know, mm-hmm. award winning, famous, super famous big journalist. Time. And yeah, big, big time journalist. And she, you know, she was telling me that I forget if this is during the interview or if it's off camera, but one of the things that she loves about journalism is being able to tell the stories. They're not necessarily her yeah. story, you know, right. it's not like she's writing this script. But she sees these different things and she gave like about a father that was holding his three-year-old kid that got swooped up into a tsunami and stuff like that. And being able to tell those real stories and, uh, you know, telling in a way that emotionally grapples with people is one of the things that motivates her. Sounds like you have a lot in common. That's what what like the angle that you're going out with too, as far as being that storyteller. Definitely, I think that it's important to for filmmakers um, and journalists alike to um, articulate stories for people that sometimes they can't articulate. So mm-hmm. you articulate it in a visual way, right? right. And so um, for me as a filmmaker. Uh, one of my purposes as a filmmaker is to uh, tell the story of uh, Black Americans in a way that only uh, a Black American can tell a story, right? And so I I take that and, you know, I I take these stories and I look at them and I look at them totally different from um, how, um, you know, people that that aren't Black American uh, would look at them. And so I have a very interesting perspective um, and like Soledad O'Brien, so does she. And so I think it's important mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, people um, from uh, specific communities tell their own stories and tell yeah. the stories in a way that only they can tell it. And so, yeah, I, I and, and also too, and also too, um, you know, not just, uh, you know, limited to 
my experience, but also it's important for a storyteller to be able to tell the stories of other people from different cultures, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things about storytellers that are that are great. You can you can take this this story and you can just you don't you make it own in the sense in the sense of it's coming from your perspective, but without uh, you know um, sacrificing or denigrating the integrity of mm-hmm. that person's story, right? So you just you know you always want to be honest in telling your story and, and and forthright, but you know especially I think with the the subjects that you're right. you're talking about, I mean you want to. I think you don't want to have the label like, oh, you know, there's an agenda behind this. And I think from what I'm hearing, you're you're trying to tell the true, raw, gritty story, whether good, bad, whatever it may be. You're trying to get that out without the appearances that you're trying to go towards a specific narrative. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say yes and no. I think okay. that, uh, you know, it's traditionally in filmmaking and more uh, more than filmmaking in journalism, you want to tell a uh, unbiased story, right? right? But I, I do think there are times when you know uh, you have a, a passion project or a story mm-hmm. that is connected to your beliefs, and you want to be unbiased in some ways. But I think that it's only human for you to be skewed to a certain viewpoint you know and so it's it's a fine line you know what between, i think though it's a fine I'm line like between you, like preaching yeah. a point and 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 not preaching a point and so you have to kind of find that middle ground so you know one thing we try our best not to do is you know talk too much about politics stuff like that on the show because it is a business show but i think right. that you you know you bring it up some some valid points in some of these things. And I will say, you know, on the topic of America, I do think that, you know, people aren't too much into camps, you know, whether it's this camp or that camp. And I I think they don't understand the nuance, the full nuances of of a lot of situations. And I say that because I know you're coming from things from the racial aspect. And yes, you may see me as a white guy per se, but my wife's Peruvian, my son is Mexican, and then Mm -hmm. I have two Peruvian children. So we have a very multicultural household. And, you know, that's given us a lot of very unique situations in our family you know my daughter uh she's peruvian you know she grew up speaking spanish but yet she looks like elsa and (laughs) when we're she was growing up in the you know place like la you know that wasn't as easy for her you know there's a lot of nuanced things like that that i think that sometimes some people missed i mean do you think that's kind of accurate not accurate what's your take on everything yeah um so I think your question was, you know, uh, in in terms of uh, us being a, um, in terms of diversity, it's a lot of nuance yeah. that people miss in, within that diversity. Yeah, I do. I, yeah. I think that there is a lot of, uh, say in the black community, there's a whole lot of nuance. There's uh, mm-hmm. there's a difference uh, between a uh, uh, 
someone who's Jamaican American and someone who is uh, African American. Uh, it's not so much in terms of skin color, but in terms of lineage. Uh, right, and, right. Well, th- that's what I was saying. Like, for example, right. the Mexican, like my son's Mexican, but my kids are, are Peruvian. My wife right. is Peruvian because uh, I did live in Peru for one of those 15 years. Um, and that's where I met my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, but like, for example, my wife, it drives her bonkers when everybody's like, oh, so what part of Mexico are you from? <laughs> you know, right. and she's Peruvian. She's like, dude, I'm like 2,000, 3,000 miles away from Mexico. Right. Uh, and, and being lumped in as one and understanding that there's a lot of uh, diversity within the Latino groups, you know, wow, and, and that's kind of like what you're saying about the black America as well, too, from what I'm hearing that, you know, like the, the Jamaican descent and stuff like that. So exactly. I want to make sure I'm on the same page and understanding that. Yeah, you are on the same page. And I was just kind of answering your question about, you know, yeah. nuance in terms of uh, you yep. know, race and culture. And so, yeah, there, there, there are those differences and those differences, di- differences need to be highlighted, yeah. you know, so that we can, you know, spread knowledge about <laughs> our, our cultures and our awarenesses. So. And that, uh, I think what I've heard, maybe I hear it wrong, but what I've heard is everybody's not the same. You know, everybody yeah. is different. Everybody is not the same. Backgrounds. Right. Yeah. Every, everybody's not the same. I, I think that, you know, because uh, I know you said this wasn't a political show, so I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Hey, hey, this will be a great treat yeah. for the audience. Right. Uh, so, so, so I think that a, a lot of times, uh, specifically with the black community at large, I think, you know, uh, we kind of group people, you know, in the same pot and say, well, they're all the same uh, because, mm-hmm. because they all are of, of African descent and they all are melanated, right? Um, mm-hmm. Melanated people. Uh, but there are some, we're vastly different in a lot of ways too, right? Yeah, so, definitely. you know, being, a, being an American and, and uh, being a descendant of American child slavery and being under... Jim Crow is very different from being a uh, Nigerian uh, immigrant who came uh, over with an education. And so we're mm-hmm. alike in terms of maybe the way we look and, it's, and we may experience uh, racial profiling, but we're very different in terms of our lineage and where we come from. And I think people- that, need That's to an important that. point. That's a very important point. That, that, so, that's a critical point. And, and yeah. that's something that I, I, try, to, I, I try to stress a lot of times. And, you know, I have a neighbor that is, you know, he just, he's an immigrant from Africa, very well educated, Mm -hmm. awesome guy. We're great friends. And then I have another neighbor that, you know, he was born America, maybe second, third generation here in America. Another awesome guy, love the dude. But culturally speaking, I mean, while they may have the same color skin, you know, they are totally and that's something again you know it's something like we've experienced just because of where my how my family is you know the unique mixture that we had between white american peruvian mexican all in one household um it, it's something that that we experience i think a lot of people you know, they, they just don't understand all those different nuances. And that's why where we try not to do too much in politics on this show, yeah, I, I think what you're saying is something that is 
very important. I think it's a very important message at this time in <laughs> our culture to where, you know, this message, I, I think it needs to be said. I think it needs to get out. And that's why, yeah, no problem with you talking about it. So let's talk about the film a little bit. And this probably goes into what you were just speaking about too. But why is the film important, not just to Memphis, but also to America? Well, Memphis magic is important because, um, first of all, it's a story, uh, it's a film about, uh, really about uh, Memphis history, which is really mm -hmm. American history. So Memphis magic is a, uh, is a film that takes a look um, at the socioeconomics and racial politics of Memphis. And we do that through the lens of a dance style called urban, called uh, Memphis Chicken, excuse me, that looks like urban ballet, right? You said you said Memphis Jukin? Memphis Jukin, yeah. Memphis Jukin is the dance I've style. Never, I've never heard of it's, it's, it's Memphis beautiful. Jukin. If you're like, a, you know, Little Buck and Miles Yas, you know, these guys are on their toes. They're on point in, in, in Nike Air Force Ones. Right. So ballerinas, <laughs> they're on point in, in uh, point shoes, but these guys are on yeah, point yeah, yeah. sneakers. Right. And so, um, you know, when I would go travel to Memphis, because that's my hometown, when I would travel to Memphis, mm -hmm. uh, I would see this dance and I would say, so, you know, where does this dance, how long has this dance been around? You know, because it looks so involved. And they said 30 mm -hmm. years. And then my question was, so if this dance has been around for 30 years, then why doesn't anyone know about it? And then, then the answer was because Memphis doesn't have a lot of avenues. This is kind of answering your question. And I said, mm -hmm. oh, Memphis doesn't have a lot of avenues because of the socioeconomics and racial politics in Memphis. And we have to talk about that history. And we have to talk about why Memphis uh, not only has the type of history, but why Memphis is so important uh, to uh, America. Why? Um, you know, Memphis is the, the home of the blues um, and uh, the blues uses this, uh, I forget what you call it. It's called uh, the 16 bar in music. It's called the 16 bar something. It's, a, it's the mm -hmm. same structure that they use in pop music today. That, that's from Memphis. And so Memphis is important to uh, not only America, but to the world because of these things that come from Memphis, but you don't know that they come from Memphis. Uh, because, you know, Memphis is kind of, uh, in, in a lot of ways, kind of stuck in a, a time, not a time war, but it's stuck. And it's mm -hmm. stuck because of, of uh, structural racism. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, I mean, it's a shame, I think, when you, when you look at how some things are and how they've they've evolved. and. You know, I'm just glad that you're out there, that you're telling the story. So when you're going through this and you're putting this together and you said that it's because of structural um, racism about how it's not evolved, like it's stuck in the past, right? That's mm -hmm. what you were saying? Okay. Yeah. Um, how do you go as far as the process of making this film, Ed? getting your your message out in a way that people can, I guess, absorb it, understand it, that it's not too perplexing to them to where it, it can show the nuance, it, it can show right. how things are, but it's also not 
alienating them as well too because you also don't want to be preaching to the choir i mean you want to open up other people's eyes that may have missed it or not understand it so how, how do you do all of that in the process of making your film right so um memphis magic kind of seamlessly weaves in the the uh the history of Memphis and and uh and and juking Memphis juking itself the modern dance style um mm-hmm. so my um I'm an editor by trade mm-hmm. uh, and so my way of telling the story is very different from let's say a producer or a director I take the standpoint of an editor um, okay. in really uh, structuring the story so that... So before you, before you continue, can you explain why you view that being the editor point of view compared to the producer point of view would be, would be different? Mm-hmm. Well, the producer point of view kind of sees the film from, I would say, from the top or from the beginning. I would okay. say the editor receives everything and has to put a story together. Okay. So the editor... Okay. So the producer, they kind of give you these blocks and you have the editor, the editor, you have to build these blocks. And so mm-hmm. when you're an editor first, you look at it from the end point. Mm-hmm. That's that's the best way I can describe it. So, so, so I, I, I think I think yeah. what I'm hearing is producer, you're going to be looking top down, big picture. This is what we're trying to create. But then the editor is the person like, oh crap, you know, I've got to take all this and produce this story to hit that vision and piece this all together to make this story flow. Right. I think being an editor makes you a, uh, sometimes a better storyteller, but, but a different storyteller and how Mm -hmm. you approach a story. And so uh, I say that to say that, you know, I was, it's, it's, it's very, uh, the way I tell the story is, is very diplomatic but it's in a way that's not preachy. So it's, it gets to the point without smacking you in the face. Okay. Okay. That's good. So when you were editing this and you were creating your vision, because again, I just want to reiterate to everybody out there listening, you are an independent filmmaker. So when you were creating this, why did you decide to focus on history and the modern urban dance aspect of it to tell that story? Because I, well, for one, I think that uh, a lot of uh, Black American history is hidden. Uh, it, <laughs> it hasn't been told. And if it has been told, a lot of it hasn't been told from us uh, because <laughs> we never really controlled those narratives. Uh, and so... One, I think it's important to to know the um, the history of Memphis because of not only Memphis but history in general. Because the more you know about your history, the more you know yourself, and, you, and right. the more you know history, the the more you know why uh, certain things are important and why you do certain things and where things come from. You know, there's a source or foundation for where it comes from, and uh, in terms of Black American history, a lot of that history is was created and and, and formulated uh, uh, in slavery and in Jim Crow, and so you have to be able to tell those stories in a way that connect to the modern day world for people to to feel like it's important to them. Because if you don't connect it to today, then why is it important to me? Oh yeah. You have yeah. to you have to know the past to to I think to really be able to excel 
in right. the future because i mean a lot of people whether it's the 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 current past you know how mm -hmm. people are discussing it, i think hey good bad ugly he could all because that's how people learn and that's how people evolve i mean if you hide a lot of stuff especially bad stuff mm -hmm. then people are going to be ignorant about it and then they're not right. going to believe you know oh this right. never happened that never happened right and, and it also gives you a sense of pride right so you know mm -hmm. it's like wow you know my people did this you know so right. when you see Memphis magic you'll see that and you'll see um you see a lot of things, but um, it, it's it's really it, it's really a modern day civil rights film. That's what it really is, and so yeah. I think that it's it's very, it's a very different documentary in that you know you you, you generally don't see uh, urban dance and 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 uh, history together like that. Yeah, um, you just, just don't see that, and so it's it's very different in that way. But I think that that uh, different, especially in this kind of microwave day and age is really good so oh yeah definitely 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 it sounds amazing i i want to ask you about the film itself are there any specific stories that really really stand out to you that are in the film the story uh <clears throat> a lot of people like this story that see the film the story about robert church um robert church okay robert church um and I'll just tell you a little bit of the story so that you, you know, I, I won't give away everything. Uh, but Robert Church Sr. was a uh, an enslaved, uh, an enslaved uh, Black man who was freed um, after the Civil War. He was, his father was his uh, slave owner. His father was white. And his mother was uh, a slave. And he spent a lot of time with his father. He spent a lot of time with his father on uh, Mississippi uh, River steamboats. And so his father was in the business, not only in the slave owning business, but his father was in the business of gambling and all that kind of stuff. And so he learned a lot from being with his father. So when he was freed, he uh, became what is known as the, uh, the South's first, uh, first wealthy black man. Right. Wow. Um, now, some sources say he was probably only worth 700,000 at that time, but 700,000 in the 1870s is right. What, How what? many millions is that today? How many <laughs> millions is that today? Right. And yeah. so, uh, then he had a son named Robert church jr. Who was, uh, more political, mm -hmm. right? He wasn't such a, a business tycoon. Um, although he inherited a lot of, uh, those, uh, business qualities, but he was more of a political guy. And, uh, you know, if you, if you know Memphis, you know about E.H. Uh, e. Crump, locally known as Boss Crump, and you know about their relationship and how that relationship devours and uh, puts the, uh, a stronghold, a strangle on the Black community for many, many years to come. And so that's one of the stories that kind of stick out about Memphis magic. Um, and it's also, too, I want to say this, um, I call it Memphis magic because, and it's Memphis magic with the J. Here's my T-shirt right here. Yeah, right. I call it Memphis magic because, you know, um, it's it's a title of irony because the magic never really got an opportunity to happen in Memphis because of structural racism, right? So it could be magic, but it's just not. It's not. It's uh -huh. not. It has the potential, but it's not there. 
And the actual font of this is actually uh, the font on the poster, on the, uh, the film poster, comes from a, uh, a song uh, called The Memphis Blues. So if you look up The Memphis Blues, mm-hmm. it's, it's, the font is like that, right? And The Memphis Blues was uh, done by a man named W.C. Handy, who was called the father of the blues, who was, uh, you know, who was on Beale Street in Memphis creating these blues records. The Memphis Blues was the first song with blues in the title. So it was the first time that yeah. the blues was introduced as the blues to the United States and to the world. Right. I'm a huge blues fan. I love right. you lose. I mean, I, I like my favorite band is probably uh, Aerosmith, for example. And yeah. a lot of Aerosmith, especially the earlier music, um, was very influenced from a lot of these great blues players from right. uh, Rolling Stones yeah, Rolling Stones too. And that, that's where a lot of those, yeah, there's a lot of bands. I mean, anybody that likes classic rock, yeah. uh, a lot of that music actually, you know, came inspired from the blues. I mean, it's it's basically a harder, maybe faster pitched version of, you know, the blues music. And it, it's good, good stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great stuff. And so, yeah, so this, this, te- this, the, the font of Memphis Magic was based off the album cover because the mm-hmm. album cover, the words uh, go, they go, um, uh, Mr. Crump don't like no, um, uh, what does he say? Uh, pretty much uh, stragglers here. And so, but what happened in those days uh, because of uh, this thing called convict leasing that happened in Jim Crow, if you were a, a black mm-hmm. man, if you were just loitering, if you didn't have a job, because they didn't have jobs back then, unless you were like a sharecropper. They were just, these companies would come and just pick you up and take you somewhere to, uh, 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 whether it be a sharecropping field or, 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 some, or, or, or some field, and sometimes you would never be seen again. It's called mm-hmm. convict leasing. So it was like legal slave catching almost, right? This was in the 1900s. And wow. so the song is kind of based off of that. And so to take back the power of it, I use that, the kind of the font, and I just put magic on it because, Well, know, what, why do you have the J in magic? The J is for no, joking. Jo- okay, okay, okay. The J is for joking. I see what you did there, Eddie. Yeah, the J <laughs> is for joking. As a matter of fact, on the back of this T-shirt, it says the J is for joking. There you go. There you and go. I'm gonna send you so- a, and I'm going to send you a link so uh, that people can buy T-shirts. Uh, for Memphis Magic, because this is oh, kind of yeah. how we, because I'm an independent filmmaker, this is kind of how we support ourselves. And another way, another stream of revenue we do to support ourselves and to get the word out. So I'm yeah. going to send you that link. Yeah, that'll be perfect. I'll make sure that I put it down in the description of the videos yeah. below. Please help support. Look, this is an independent media channel. Uh, you know, he's an independent filmmaker. Support us all the way around. So how can people watch your film? Okay, so people can watch my film. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, it's on Tubi uh, TV. Uh, those are the two, okay. pretty much the two main channels. But I also want to say this too. Um, it made its television premiere on uh, uh, Scientology's network uh, documentary showcase. Um, yes. And it did, and it aired um, internationally uh, in 17 languages and also on Direct TV uh, 320. Um, and yeah, it was just, you know, 
they were, they were the first television company to pick it up. It did. So that kind of that license kind of ran out, but I just do want to, you know, give them their shout out uh, in that. And um, it, it was good because, you know, their documentary showcase, which is uh, totally different from the religious part of uh, of Scientology. It's like the more right. secular part. Um, the documentary showcase, you know, they they have these string of documentaries that really they really focus on social consciousness. Right. And they, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, take these independent filmmakers, they license their, their films out to be on the uh, the network for however amount of time. And, you know, they really give you a lot of good promotion in terms of getting the word out. So, you know, um, part of Memphis Magic's, Magic's success is... is well, they hooked us up. ...to be on their platform. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, man. So I have to give them their shout out too. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. So, hey, I wish you the utmost success. Uh, I hope you enjoyed being on the Shark Tank. In the I Shark enjoy Tank. talking to you, man. I enjoy <laughs> Shark talking Bay. to you. <laughs> that's awesome. I, that's I, awesome. I, I, got, I got bit by a shark for the first time. And there you, know. you go. There you go. There you go. How can people reach out to you? Wow, they can reach out to me. Um, they can go to my uh, Instagram or my Facebook, Memphis Magic. That's Memphis and M-A-J-I-C, Magic with the yep. J. The J is for Junkin, remember that? So it's Memphis Magic on Twitter, Memphis Magic on uh, Instagram, Memphis Magic on Facebook. Awesome, awesome. Hey, Eddie, thank you so much for coming on here. I wish you the so utmost success with your film. And yes. we're definitely going to post those links out for you. Awesome, thank you, thank you. Yep, nope, cheers, mate. Cheers, man. Wow, such a deep interview with Eddie, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help out, share this out to your network. Shark Bite Biz is the best kept secret in business, okay? Share it out to your friends, your family, your coworkers. Let them learn about this amazing podcast and everything that we do, okay? I'd love nothing more than to see Memphis Magic, Eddie Bailey, and Shark Bite Biz Treading. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, Eddie. Awesome and, you know, a very deep discussion here. I always promise I'm not going to bring politics into our show. We try our best to be apolitical. If you want politics, you can go to another channel to get that. This isn't the place. This channel is about supporting business growth and supporting your ability to grow. That's why I had Eddie on. This is one of those more nuanced discussions I've had on the show. I will admit that. I know that if I've asked 100 people what they thought about this interview, and we'd probably get 100 totally different answers. Some hot takes and some positive takes alike. I did this episode on purpose. Why? Because I want every listener or viewer on YouTube to not just look at a discussion like this and think of something as either this or that. You know, there are many layers of the onion to peel back here. Again, life isn't just as simple or straightforward as one would like it to be. I'll tell you what I heard in this interview. I heard the story of a hardworking, independent, Emmy-nominated director that created a documentary about a subject that is deeply important to him. The journey he took to be able to get where he is, I mean, it wasn't easy. And that's something that I think that we all can relate to. Many of us have had 
paths, just like Eddie did to get where we are today. The roads, they're twisted. They're full of curves, you know, a lot of dead ends. But just like Eddie did, he stuck with it and was finally able to create his dream and get his first directorial debut in a film. It was also great to discuss some of the topics of race at a higher level, you know, just to get some understanding and perspective. We really weren't debating or discussing that topic very deep, but more hearing an historical account. And that's what Eddie used for the basis of his wonderful film. Culture, history, hey, they are important. And this film has all of that combined you know, and displaying it through the eyes and the vision of Eddie's storytelling ability. Eddie, congrats on your film, bud. Congrats on the success you've had. And I think if there was one thing that we can learn from this interview, it's that you can accomplish your dream. This film was a dream of Eddie's and it took him many, many years of hard work. But finally, after fighting tooth and nail for it, dude succeeded. And that is something I respect. Question of the day. This interview could have gone a million different directions, and it possibly did spark some emotions with a few. What did you get out of the interview? Leave a comment down below on YouTube. I'd love to hear feedback on this. And remember, go out there, support Eddie, support his film, buy a t-shirt, watch the film, anything you can, because I'm a big, big advocate personal branding and independent content creators like Eddie, like myself, okay? I'm an independent content creator just like Eddie is. And that's something that I'll support anybody in my audience with. If you got a project like Eddie's, reach out to me. Come on the show. Let's tell everybody about it so they can hear what you're doing. Interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. Remember, don't forget to join the channel for $3 a month. You can support this show. Become a baby shark. Or go to deadhousecoffee.com, use code SHARK, get 20% off of your order, and all the proceeds support this channel getting bigger and better. Hey, you all know this by now, but I'm David Strasser, and this is Shark Bite Biz, and we'll see you all next episode. Cheers! Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 